My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Oriane Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am here with a legend in the snake world, uh, Bob Zappalordi. I don't even remember uh, where I first met Bob, but we've bumped into each other at various places over the years. Uh, and he has a fascinating history uh, in, in terms of some of the people that, that he worked with early on in his career and the, and the places and times that, that he was uh, you know, lucky to experience. And uh, he's also uh, one of the people who's probably done the most work on pine snakes uh, of anybody in the world. So uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about Bob's history and kind of how he came up uh, through the snake world. And then we're also going to focus in a little bit on pine snakes and talk to you about one of the most amazing animals in North America. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. How are you doing today? Hi. Good morning, Chris. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you about snakes and, and my various uh, research I've done over the years. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I started out at the Staten Island Zoo in 1964. I worked under the late uh, Carl Korfeld. He was my mentor. And uh, I learned an awful lot from Carl. And I was fortunate enough to uh, work at the Staten Island Zoo for 14 years. So uh, it's been a nice journey. Yeah, that must have been, uh, you know, quite uh, an amazing adventure and just a interesting person to meet and, and work with. So how did you end up getting into snakes and, you know, let's just say reptiles more generally is, uh, how did that come about? Is that something from when you were a young kid or something came out later in life? Yeah. I mean, when I, when I was a young kid, uh, we lived in Brooklyn, New York, but we had friends on Staten Island, which was a very rural area at the time. So we would go out there on weekends and, uh, we'd stay at, uh, my parents' friend's house. And there was a, a vast wilderness behind their house. And that's when I first learned about frogs and snakes and turtles. So I was, I was a young boy when that happened and it, it just stayed with me. The interest never left. So, uh, uh, I eventually, when I got older, I applied for a job at the Staten Island zoo and I was able to meet Caulfield and I asked him if I could fill out an application. And he told me he had a whole drawer full of applications. He really didn't wasn't hiring or anything, but I filled out the application anyway and spoke to him for a little while. And then about six months later, uh, I got a call. Uh, I wasn't home. My wife answered the phone and he said it was a call from the Staten Island Zoo and tell Bob to call me back if, if he's still interested in the job. So when I got home, I immediately called him back and I says, you bet I'm still interested. And that was the start of my career as a professional herpetologist and uh, Caulfield trained me on how to handle venomous snakes and everything else that one needs to know to be a, a reptile keeper at a, at a zoo with so many rattlesnakes. In fact, at the time, the Staten Island Zoo was the first zoo to have all 36 species and subspecies of rattlesnakes that occurred in the United States. So that was one of Caulfield's uh, bragging points, mm -hmm. uh, well-deserved. And, uh, while at the zoo, I got to meet a lot of other herpetologists like John Baylor from the Bronx Zoo and Dr. Rudy Arndt from uh, Stockton State College and just a number of people that interacted. Uh, in fact, Manny Rubio lived on Staten Island and uh, he and I made many field trips to South Carolina. So uh, Okatee was the big snake hunting place that we used to go to. Uh, when it was still open to the to the public before they closed it down. 
So I got to hunt snakes at Okatee, and that's where I met Gar Gary Williamson. Uh, he's a good friend and colleague of mine. We just wrote the book about the Caulfield letters, and I believe you interviewed Gary. I last did. Year. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, what was it? What was you know when you were a keeper at Staten Island Zoo? What was like a day in the life uh, of a keeper working for Caulfield? Like, what what would you what would you do? How much were you working directly with him? Those types of things. Well, uh, as I said, Caulfield trained me along with some of the head keepers on the, uh, the red, regular protocol for, you know, husbandry and, and taking care of the snakes. We had lots of venomous snakes, including king cobras and green mambas and all the various puff adders and gaboon vipers and snakes from all over the world. So one had to be very cautious. Uh, so in the morning before the zoo opened, uh, we would do all the cleaning of cages and make sure the glass was clean and all the water bowls were filled and all the stools were removed from the cages. And so it looked presentable when the public came in. The zoo opened at 10 in the morning and closed at five in the evening. So uh, it was quite an experience. Uh, while I was at the zoo, I guess it was about my fifth year at the zoo, uh, I was bitten by a European horn viper and that was an experience. That was my only venomous snake bite, but it was my own fault for being careless. Uh, when we were cleaning the, the cages that were off scene, behind the scenes, uh, all the snakes were kept on newspaper with uh, cardboard hide boxes and a water bowl. So in order to clean the cage, you had to lift the snake out and put him in a container or place him on the floor temporarily while you change the newspaper and clean the cage. So the, uh, the viper, when I put him on the floor, he crawled underneath some other cages and all I could see was his tail sticking out. So instead of taking a hook and pulling him out, I grabbed him by the tail and the thing immediately bit me on my index finger and I was envenomated with both fangs. So then I put the snake back in his cage and rang the alarm and the zoo vet came running down and she gave me an injection of Wyeth antivenine but uh, we didn't have the this, this specific antivenine for that particular species. So the Bronx Zoo had it. So in the meantime, they took me to the hospital and I started getting a uh, you know, reaction. My finger was swelling, the, the pain was there. It was almost like somebody holding a cigarette butt to my flesh, that's how painful it was. And uh, eventually the Bronx Zoo sent down the specific antivenine via motorcycle cop to the hospital. So then I got uh, 20 cc's of the specific antivenine. But uh, hours later, my arm started swelling all the way up to my shoulder. I was getting red streaks going towards my chest. So it was a, a full injection of, of, of venom from that snake. But fortunately, once I got the specific uh, antivenine, uh, symptoms stopped. And I was in the hospital for about five days until my arm returned to normal size and I went, was able to go back to work. Hmm. So, so it sounds like you learned your lesson though. Snake. That was the only, only venomous bite you've had your whole career. Yeah. So uh, the rest of the time at the zoo, I, I left the zoo in 1977 when I started my environmental consulting company, Herpetological Associates. So, and, and I've been handling venomous snakes ever since. So it was a, a good lesson to learn, always, always respect the snake, never take anything for granted. Uh, and like Koffel said in his book, it's the snake that you don't see you have to worry about. <laughs> and I didn't see where that snake's head was. So yeah, be careful. Yeah. And we just lost one of our dear friends, as you know, Yes. Uh, Marty Martin, who yep. was uh, bitten by a timber rattlesnake, one of his, his pet snakes while he was servicing the cage. So we all miss Marty very deeply. Yep. No, I agree with that. I've told it on the podcast before, but he's he's the one who showed me my first timber rattlesnake in the wild many years ago. So, but uh, okay. Well, while you're at Staten Island, you know, and working with Caulfield and and others that you mentioned, you did mention these South Carolina trips. Um, but, you know, that that time period and Caulfield himself was kind of famous for making these kind of adventures 
uh, to different places, and I'm assuming doing a fair number of collections for the zoo. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but um, but I just wonder if you could talk about that part of your job a little bit. How often were you? Uh, did you go out on these expeditions? Was it primarily to to South Carolina or other places as well? No, I was able to uh, make a couple of trips to South Carolina while Caulfield was there. And on other occasions, we met, we went to North Carolina to Hyde County area to look for the uh, red pygmies of, of the Carolinas. And again, Gary Williamson would join us on those those trips. And I also was able to make several trips to the Pine Barrens with Caulfield uh, early on. And uh, we, we had king cobras at the zoo, and we often needed black racers and other uh, common snakes that we, we used to feed the king cobras when, uh, when they were available. Uh, we also had to supplement the diet of king cobras with uh, rats. And it was difficult. King cobras are snake eaters. That's their main diet. So it's very difficult to get them to start eating rodents. So what we used to do is we'd take a, a, a frozen black rat, uh, black racer and thaw it out. And then uh, we would tie uh, rats onto the tail of the snake. So while, while the king cobra was eating the, the black racer, then it automatically would eat uh, several rats that were tied in a long string. So we fooled them into eating rodents that way. But getting back to South Carolina, uh, Goldfeld used to say, uh, let's take a walk on this field. I, I have a feeling that there's going to be some diamondback rattlesnakes up on this field. That was his favorite snake, was the eastern diamondback rattlesnake, among others. Willard's rattlesnake was also one of his favorites. But uh, he would say, a, a bad day in the field is better than a good day in the office. And I think a lot of us agree it's being out in the field is the, is the most exciting thing and seeing the snakes and other reptiles and amphibians in their natural habitat. So uh, it, it was just a learning experience. He, he knew so much about not only reptiles, and amphibians, but he could identify birds and plants. And he was an all around naturalist and uh, he was a wonderful mentor. It was quite a, quite a thrill for me to, work on the call Caulfield. Great. So you were collecting all kinds of snakes, like you said, to feed the cobras and other snake eating snakes that you guys had and, and collecting rattlesnakes. Um, how about the corn snakes? You know, they're relatively famous from that region. Was that kind of one of the targets that, that you guys were looking for? Or? Yeah. Um, a lot of the keepers had a particular fondness for Okatee corn snakes. Uh, my late colleague, Zig Lazinski, famous photographer, he worked at the Staten Island Zoo for, for 20 years. Uh, and he he lived right down the road from me where, where I currently live now in Tom's River. So uh, Ziggy loved Okatee corns and he had some of the prettiest ones I've ever seen. And I, of course I, I kept them as well. And uh, we had them on exhibit at the zoo but uh, we would often use them uh, to trade for other, with other zoos around the country if they needed a, a particular rattlesnake or if they wanted an Okatee corn snake. We would uh, interact with other curators at zoos. And, and uh, at the time, it was you know, acceptable to do those kinds of trades from zoo to zoo. And we also had the necessary permits uh, to, to do that. So... Great. Corn snakes were really fabulous. Yeah. Well, let's uh, so you're at the Staten Island Zoo, and then you said, would you say it was 1977 you created your own company? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I left the zoo and started uh, my environmental consulting company. My first contract was with the state of New Jersey Endangered Non Game Species Program. And they hired me to uh, look at timber rattlesnakes corn snakes. The corn snake is an endangered species in New Jersey. Timber rattlesnake is an endangered species in New Jersey. And the northern pine snake is a threatened species in New Jersey. So we have three species of snakes that are legally protected in the state. And the other species I worked with was the bog turtle. Uh, 
Uh, I should have mentioned while at the zoo, uh, I started studying bog turtles. Uh, I, I wanted a research project and after talking to Caulfield and, and uh, some other colleagues, I came up with the idea of studying bog turtles because at the time there was very little known about them. And uh, I was able to get a grant from the National Audubon Society uh, my, my first year. And I, and I chose a site up in northern New Jersey uh, as my main study area. And between, uh, I think it was 1971, uh, I started that research project. And between 71 and 74, I was able to mark uh, 120 bog turtles at this particular site. So it was really a, a very robust population. In fact, uh, a, a female bog turtle from that site uh, that I marked and photographed uh, was on the cover of my first book, uh, Amateur Zoologist's Guide to Turtles and Crocodilians. And uh, interesting story about that particular turtle. Uh, a colleague of mine uh, recaptured that snake uh, a number of years later, and he was able to identify it by its uh, marginal code number. And uh, at the time I caught it, this, we estimated the age to be 20 years old. And when we he recaptured it, we estimated the age to be 64 years old. So it was the oldest bog turtle that we knew of that survived in the wild. And that's the specimen that's on the cover of my first book. Wow, amazing. I recently finished another book. Uh, it's called The Natural History and Ecology of the Bog Turtle. And that's going to be published in this coming March uh, by Eco Publishing out in uh, New Mexico. They've agreed to publish the book. So that's at press right now. So I'm quite excited about that. Yeah, that's great. I'll be sure to to pick it up. And then when it comes out to, uh, make sure to mention it on here. So, um, or maybe we'll even have you back to do a bog turtle episode, uh, when the book comes out. So, but, uh, okay. bog, bog turtles are, uh, they're one of my, my, I love all those, I call them the former Clemmies turtles, <laughs> you know, so, right. Clemmies group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, they're some of my favorite turtles on the planet and, uh, you know, I've, I've got to spend a fair amount of time, uh, working with bog turtles, not as much as you, but, but really amazing animal. And I mean, just, you know, obviously one of the rarest turtles in the world now. So, and uh, yeah, we have them here where I live too. I actually have uh, a site, you know, not too, too far from, from where I live. So uh, great animal. But uh, so, so you're working on bog turtles uh, while at Staten Island Zoo, and then you created this, uh, herpetological associates. And it sounds like you said your first project was New Jersey based. Did you ultimately work beyond New Jersey or was most of the work kind of focused in your home state? Initially, a lot of the work was in New Jersey, but eventually I, I got some contracts in New York uh, and then in, uh, in Maryland and in Delaware. Uh, I've worked, uh, in North Carolina, while I was at the zoo, uh, Dr. Richard Bruce from the Highlands Biological Station, uh, University of Western North Carolina had contacted me because they had some historic records of bog turtles from Ken Numoris from years ago. And Dr. Bruce wanted to reconfirm whether the, there were still turtles at those historic sites. And he also wanted me to look for new sites in Western North Carolina. So over a three year period, I had a grant to come out to North Carolina for uh, two or three weeks at a time. And that was a wonderful experience too. And uh, we found uh, several new bog turtle colonies, uh, one, in, one in Henderson County, which was a new county record. In fact, after I finished that project, uh, Dennis Herman, who's a famous bog turtle person as well, took over my study at, at that Henderson County site, and uh, and Dennis went on to form the Project Bog Turtle, which is a a several state group that does surveys for bog turtles throughout the southeast. 
and uh, Bern Tryon was among those who worked with Dennis. So they, they, all those guys are good friends of mine. Yeah. I actually, I live very close to Highlands. You know, I live less than half an hour drive from Highlands. And, and uh, actually, my first introduction to this area uh, was uh, I spent a summer at the Highlands Biological Station when Bruce was there a long time ago and uh, taking classes and helping graduate students. And that's what kind of sold me on this the Southern Appalachian region. So, um, anyways, that Highlands Plateau is a pretty amazing place. So, so you're, you're, you know, you create this company, Herpetological Associates, and you're working, like you said, you've got, you know, a lot of work in New Jersey, but you're, uh, you're working beyond that in other states, kind of in the Northeast and some in North Carolina. <clears throat> um, and, and what type of work? would you would your company do is it you know obviously herpetologicals in the name is it purely herpetological work and and then even within that like what types of projects would your consulting firm work on or do does your consulting firm work on because it's still in business Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orian Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org. Our, our main uh, research is with uh, reptiles and amphibians, but we also have a, a, a staff uh, ornithologist and a consulting uh, botanist that, that we use all the time if, if it's a rare plant issue comes up. And uh, so we try to cover all those things. We don't do bat surveys. That's not in our venue. That's too specialized. But uh, plants and uh birds, and all kinds of reptiles and amphibians. In fact, uh, we were very successful in doing a tiger salamander uh, translocation project years ago for the state. Uh, the tiger salamander is endangered in New Jersey, as it is in several other states, New York and, and uh, Delaware and, and uh, Maryland. And... Uh, what we did is we took uh, eggs from sites that were not on protected land, in other words, private property or, or maybe township property where the breeding ponds were being uh, polluted or using as dumping grounds. So what, what we did is we created a pond on state land. We actually dug the pond. We had to select a site that had a, a nice gravel clay layer so that it would hold the water. And we, we designed the pond so it was uh, about three meters at the center, but it gradually sloped up to less than, uh, you know, five centimeters at its edges. And then because it was a new, quote, vernal pond, it uh, didn't have any vegetation or it didn't have a food supply for the laurel tiger salamanders that would be introduced there. So what we did is we went to known breeding sites that had aquatic vegetation and lots of fairy shrimp and other invertebrates. And we collected the aquatic veg uh, and invertebrates whenever we could. And we carried the, these uh, vegetation and bushel baskets to the, to the uh, donor site and spread it out. And we also uh, would cut branches and, and uh, other places. So there'd be some places for the, uh, salamanders to hide under and, and spread the aquatic vegetation around it so they'd have places to lay their eggs. And then uh, we put in over a three-year period about uh, 75 to 100 egg masses over a three-year period. And by the end of the third year, the uh, translocation was successful. In fact, uh, 35 years later, those 
that breeding site still has tiger salamanders. And just recently, we started uh, two years ago on another movement because uh, what we've learned is uh, sea level rise is coming and some of these breeding ponds that are close to the shore are eventually going to be inundated with salt water. So in order to protect those uh, breeding sites, we've moved eggs from there to a new higher elevation site on state land down in Cumberland County. So that's uh, another project that we've worked on as a research project. As far as clients go, we work for developers, we work for townships, we work, we work for lawyers, and a lot of it is presence or absence of threatened or endangered species. If a developer wants to put in uh, 500 homes on a 600 acre site, he has to demonstrate that there's no critical habitat, there's no nesting habitat, there's no hibernation sites, there's no dens, there's no breeding ponds for rare species, there's no barred owls or other rare birds on the site. So we have to go in there and do sometimes a one or even two year study prior to that developer getting his permit. So some of these projects are long term. And what we do is we set up uh, drift fences with uh, snake traps. We've designed special snake traps with one-way doors so that if the snake enters the trap, it can go in easily. But then be, when, once he goes in the entrance, a wire door falls down behind him, and then he can't get out. In fact, I loaned some of these traps to uh, Dirk Stevenson when he was doing some studies with timber rattlesnakes. He would put them at gopher tortoise burrows. And he was able to successfully capture diamondback rattlesnakes uh, that were in the Gulf of Tortoise burrows using the design that my traps uh, uh, have been used by us for the last 30 years. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So it's, and so, you, so it's, your company just really has, has a breadth of work, uh, working on a variety of amphibians and reptiles. But, um, you know, it sounds like real research and kind of on the ground management conservation work. So that, that's great. I'd, I'd like to transition a little bit and talk about pine snakes. But before I do that, let's, um, let's, uh, let's talk about New Jersey for a second. And so uh, when most people think of New Jersey, they probably think of uh, New York City and, the, and those surrounding areas. But there's actually some very wild uh, places in, in your home state. And in particular, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the Pine Barrens region uh, down in southern New Jersey. I was wondering if you could just take a couple of minutes and kind of tell people what the Pine Barrens are and why they're so special, um, you know, in the context of, of the entire state. It's true. A lot of people kind of giggle when you say New Jersey. They think of the New Jersey Turnpike by, by Newark and where the airport is. And it's a lot of in industrial areas and nothing but homes and houses and, and big towns and cities. But New Jersey also has some very remote areas. We have the Highlands region in the northern part of the state, very mountainous at the Kinnatiti Mountains. And that's where the population of the, the mountain timbers are. We have the timber rattlesnakes, like everybody thinks of them in, in the northern region. But if you go to southern New Jersey, there's one million acres of pine forest known as the Pine Barrens. And the important thing about the Pine Barrens is there's an aquifer below the ground, the Cohansi Aquifer. There's 17 trillion gallons of pure water there. And the, 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 the beautiful area uh, survives because it's been protected by so many different groups. At one time, they wanted to develop the Pine Barrens into a huge airport and multi-city area but it was fought by the New Jersey Conservation Foundation. It took years, but they won that battle, and then the Pine Barrens became protected. So there's actually a federal and state organization called the Pinelands Commission, which monitors any kind of growth in the Pine Barrens. And the Pinelands Commission has done a wonderful job keeping in check the demand for development within the Pinelands region. And it's based on all the rare plants, the birds, the reptiles, amphibians, 
and the unique aquifer below the ground. Uh, it's precious and that's why it's being protected. So I'm fortunate enough to have started out doing my research before the Pinelands Commission became uh, active. And now I work uh, as a partner with the Pinelands Commission science staff. Uh, recently, we've, we've partnered over the last uh, five years. We've studied the corn snake extensively, radio tracking and identifying new areas for the corn snake. We've studied the eastern king snake because its association with wetlands and the timber rattlesnake. We've been doing radio tracking. We've, we've tracked up, up to uh, 50 king snakes, over 75 corn snakes. And of course, the work I've done with pine snakes with Dr. Joanna Berger from Rutgers University, we've worked together for 45 years studying pine snakes. So uh, it's been quite an interesting journey. And I've learned so much from working with colleagues. Uh, another colleague who I still work with is Dr. Howard Reinert, who's famous for his research with timber rattlesnakes and massasaugas and, and northern copperheads. And uh, Dr. Reinert has also parted with us and the Pinelands Commission uh, with a memorandum of understanding that we uh, have been studying all these animals and we've gotten some really nice grants to fund all this research. So, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've been, been able to, to visit. Yeah, so. I visited the Pine Barrens one time and I was able to spend a couple days, uh, you know, hiking and, you know, it's really an amazing place. It, it, you know, it actually reminds me quite a bit of some of the ecosystems you see down here in the, in the Southeast in terms of, you know, the sand, as you mentioned, and the pines and, you know, the, you know, somewhat of a fire dependent ecosystem. And, uh, you know, so it's a fascinating, fascinating place. I've never really spent any time there snake hunting, but, uh, you well, know, someday. Well, Chris, you should come up this coming, uh, mid June, late June during the pine snake nesting season and see how these snakes can actually dig their own nesting burrow using their snout and their, their, their strong muscular neck. Uh, watching a snake dig its own burrow is, is quite an interesting thing. Wow. And, yeah, I, uh, I, I was always fascinated that the pine snakes down south, uh, they do it in North Carolina. Jeff Bean and, and uh, Dave Woodward have been studying the northern pine snake in North Carolina, and they have confirmed that they do the same type of digging in North Carolina. But the uh, Florida pine snake and the black pine snake and the Louisiana pine snake, I believe they've adapted to use the burrows of the pocket gopher uh, who, are, who already make these uh, nice tunnel systems so that the Louisiana pine snake and the black pine snake, they just go down into those uh, already existing burrows and dig side chambers. Uh, I've, this is my theory. I haven't proven it, but I believe that's what they're doing, as opposed to the northern pine snake, where we do not have uh, pocket gophers. We do have moles, and some of the snakes use mole tunnels. In fact, the king snakes and corn snakes use mole tunnels to lay their eggs, but they also parasitize the efforts of pine snakes. So we found that uh, corn snakes, black racers, hognose snakes, and king snakes use the efforts of pine snake and they go into their burrows and lay, lay their eggs along with the pine snake eggs. So that's really an interesting find that we've, that we've discovered. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Well, talk a little bit about pine snakes more generally. If we kind of zoom out, you mentioned a couple species. Uh, the species that, that you primarily work with is is the northern pine snake. So kind of what's their distribution and what are some of the other pine snakes we see, um, you know, here in North America? Well, uh, in southern New Jersey, the pine snake is known from southern Monmouth County all the way to Cape May County. Uh, they occur in each of the Pine Barrens counties, but their distribution is not vast. In other words, it's uh, broken up because of uh, past historic development and the increase of, uh, of roads. The old roads have more traffic on them and there's a lot of new roads and the uh, interstate uh, highways that run through the Pinelands. So uh, roadkill mortality is really uh, one of their problems. 
we've tried to design uh, some tunnels, snake tunnels or wildlife uh, underpasses. Uh, but uh, it, it's been slow in getting the DOT and, and other agencies to adopt using uh, wildlife passages on the roadways. It's something that we're still pushing for. Other problems with the pine snake is uh, wanton killing by ignorant people. You know, they like to shoot anything they see, or some people can't tolerate a snake in their yard and they'll, they'll kill them. But uh, the other problem is the increase of predators. Uh, Red-tailed hawks are a tremendous predator to snakes in general and pine snakes in particular. I've, I've lost uh, at least 20 of my radio track pine snakes from predation by red-tailed hawk. Also predation from fox, red fox, gray fox, and coyote. The coyote population has increased drastically in, in the Northeast and in, in the Pine Barrens. So they, they not only eat the adults, but they can smell where the eggs are and they dig up the eggs and, and eat the eggs too. Or they find them when they're, they're hatching, when the baby snakes are coming out. So predation is, is a big problem. Yeah, these... I think that's true throughout the range with most other snake species, especially the pine snakes. Down south, you have to deal with fire ants. You have to deal with uh, feral hogs. You have to deal with armadillos and all those things that eat eggs. Uh, so I think that's that's a problem with a lot of different snake species down south. Yeah, uh, I was going to say that whole subsidized predator, meaning predators that do well around humans like red-tailed hawks and coyotes, raccoons, whatever it might be. Yeah, they're, they're a huge uh, conservation issue for a lot of reptiles, turtles, obviously, um, you know, a big one with the nests. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a significant problem. And a lot of those predators we're talking about, again, they do really well around people. So you know, while yep. putting in the yep. road or a neighborhood, say, maybe doesn't kill a particular snake, it allows raccoons and some of these other animals to really flourish and their populations to go up. And then you end up with a, uh, a lot more predation. You know, you mentioned the, the predation by hawks and uh, interesting study. I don't know if you ever, I don't think it was ever published. It's a thesis that came out of the same lab where I did my PhD out in Idaho. But there was a study... Uh, so same genus of snakes, we call them gopher snakes out there, um, but uh, same genus of snakes. And what this master's student was doing was watching the nests of, I believe, red-tailed hawks and, and quantifying what uh, the birds were bringing back to their brood, to their offspring. And I can't, I don't quote me on these numbers, but it was pretty uh, astonishing. I want to say it was like, in the 60 or 70% of the food items that they brought back for the young hawks were pituophis. So anyways, interesting. So. Yeah. I mean, we, we can always tell when a, a, a pine snake is eaten by a raptor because it has the transmitter and the antenna wire under the skin and you know how you can take a scissors and, and pull a ribbon and it coils up? Mm -hmm. Same thing with the antenna wire. When the antenna wire is all coiled up, that means a raptor was pulling on it with its beak. So you can tell that the antenna wire is just coiled up like a little spring. That means it was killed by a raptor. If it was killed by a mammal, you can look for teeth marks in the wax coating that we put on the radio transmitter. And you can, you can identify whether it was a weasel or a or a, uh, a fox by the, the thickness of the fang mark or the to tooth mark in the wax coating that we put on the, the, uh, the radio transmitter. So hmm. also well, you can tell when a pine snake nest is dug up by a predator, what, what, if, it's a, if it's a coyote or a fox, they really dig deep and scatter the eggs all over the place. If it's a skunk, it's not so noticeable. Yeah. You know, you, there's different ways of telling what the predator was. You mentioned that these northern pine snakes, again, they're not with the pocket gophers, and, and so that they're excavating their own nests and, and burrows. Um, are there any other 
kind of big ecological differences between uh, northern pine snake and some of the other pine snake species that maybe you find further south? Uh, aside, aside from the lack of pocket gophers and some of the other predators you have down south, I think they pretty much behave the same way. Their body structure uh, is exactly the same. They have the real pointy snout, muscular neck muscles, and and uh, uh, the most I've I've been able to study. I've never had the opportunity to radio track uh, southern pine snakes or black pine snakes, but I have gone out with colleagues who were tracking them, and I've gotten to see the behavior, and it's pretty much the same. Uh, they behave the same way in North Carolina. They behave the same way in Southern Georgia, at the uh, where Laura Smith uh, uh, does her research. I'm actually and, recording uh, an episode with Laura Smith in a couple hours after this one, so everybody will hear from her soon oh, cool. too as, as well. So, well, tell her I said hi. I will do that. She's a very smart, wonderful person. She is. Um, yeah. So. I don't see a whole lot of differences. The diet might be slightly different because of, of, of prey availability, uh -huh. uh, but they pretty much behave the same. That's why I believe that they, they're just using the existing burrows uh, to, to lay their eggs inside chambers. So I think uh, somebody needs to, to verify that. Yeah. How about um, overwintering? Obviously, I mean, while it doesn't get terribly cold in southern New Jersey, it definitely gets colder than places like South Georgia. Um, maybe talk a little bit about pine snake overwintering. And I know, you know, you have pioneered, you know, the construction of artificial overwintering sites for some snake species. Maybe if you can work that in uh, as well, it'd be great for people to hear about that. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. This is some of the research I've done with uh, Joanna Berger at Rutgers University. We first started out looking at nesting behavior, and then we got more interested in how, the, how they're spending their winters. Then we started research on overwintering. And uh, I knew from the work I had done prior to working with Joanna Berger where some several uh, dens were. And pine snakes have two main types of hibernacula. They either use the abandoned burrows of, of uh, groundhogs or fox or skunk, or they use stump holes. Uh, fallen trees that create voids uh, where the snakes can dig down and get below the frost line. In New Jersey, the frost line during harsh winters can be 12 inches thick. Uh, mild winters, it's only six to four inches thick. But the snakes need to get below that frost line in order to survive the winter. So uh, what Joanna Berger and I started doing was... Uh, excavating natural dens to find out the structure and how deep the pine snakes need to go. So the average depth they go is one meter, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little deeper. And when we started excavating the natural dens, we, we laid out, uh, a, we would draw a diagram of how the tunnels went down. And some of them were quite intricate, had all main chambers going down below the frost line and then there would be all a series of side chambers where snakes one or two or three snakes would be in these side chambers uh, the first one we excavated was a stump hole and it had three entrances one was at the base of the tree where it had fallen down and then two other entrances is what we call a chimney sort of a straight up a hole that goes to the surface so that we call those chimney entrances and there were 14 pine snakes in that first den that we excavated. Uh, the first snake we found was a black racer, and then there were 14 pine snakes of various age classes. Wow, 14. And, That's amazing. 
14, yeah. So we wanted to recreate uh, because we disturbed the all the little side chambers because they're only made out of sand and they crumble as you're digging them. So what we did is we took cement blocks and made a chamber below the surface at the one, at the one meter depth. And then we uh, re reconstructed an entrance at the same uh, grade, like a 35 degree angle going down to the main chamber. And what we did is we took half cement blocks and put them up against one another so it would form a tunnel. And the, uh, the main tunnel would come up to the surface and the snakes could go in and out and get down into the main chamber. But then the cement blocks were placed so that there would be a hole going into the virgin sand where this, once the snakes went into the main chamber, they could dig through and go into the what we call the B horizon sand. And that's how we reconstructed it. And we put a roof on top of it, a three quarter inch piece of plywood. And that formed the roof. And it was it was not a very big chamber. It was less than a, a meter square. But that gave the snakes access down into the ground and then they could dig their own chambers. So we did that with uh, seven different natural hibernacula, and that was 35 years ago. Those Every winter since that we've been digging up those same dens and recapturing snakes, the most pine snakes we found in one den was 30 pine snakes. Wow. All age classes from hatchlings up to snakes that were 25 years old. Over time, we've been able to, to, to track these snakes throughout their life because we, we use pit tags to mark each individual snake. Years ago, before pit tags were available, we used to brand the snakes, and that was so tedious to count the scales and then make an X or a V or some uh, unique mark in the scales by cauterizing each scale with a soldering iron. So the, the good thing about that was when the snake shed its skin, you could see the brand on the shed skin, so you knew that the snake was around. But now the pit tags are a wonderful invention and it allows us to track snakes. As I said, up to 25 years, we've recaptured the same snake at the same den year after year. Sometimes they would skip, you wouldn't see a snake because there are other dens in the area that we don't know about. And sometimes snakes will go and they switch dens. They, they shift from one den to another. In fact, males tend to shift more than females. Females have a greater fidelity to the den that they're using. Do you have to replace that so, plywood uh, roof uh, frequently every couple of years? Yeah. Or? Okay. Well, we used, we started out using regular plywood, but the termites like to eat wood, so we have to replace it. We started using the walmanized treated wood so that it you know, would last longer. Or sometimes we'll use a piece of sheet metal as the roof, and that lasts a whole lot longer. But eventually that will rust too. But we do have to replace uh, and, and maintain and, and uh, do maintenance on, on the structure. The one thing we never do is we never disturb the entrance because the entrance is laced with, uh, with chemical scent trails laid down by the snakes and we don't want to disturb that. And that's why they keep coming back because we only dig down from the top and not from the entrance. Once we make that entrance, we never disturb that again. So we don't want to ruin the scent trails yeah. for the snakes to come back. That makes sense. So in your 40 some odd years of, of researching these animals, I mean, what, what have you learned? I'm kind of curious about their life history. So I know they're one of the species that, you know, lays, say, relatively few but large eggs. But have you learned anything about their life history in terms of like, you know, years to sexual maturity, uh, you know, say survival or recruitment of young, anything like that, that that you think everybody would have be interested in? Well, uh, that's one of the things we've been looking at is survivorship. Uh, there's also a lot of mortality. We estimate that uh, average clutch of pine snake eggs is, is nine eggs. The most we've seen was 14 from one female and the least we've seen were four eggs from young females. And sometimes all the eggs aren't fertile. They may lay a few more eggs, but some of those aren't fertile. 
but uh, the, the longest survivorship we had was 25 years. Uh, and that was from a hatchling that we, we injected a pit tag in and it, and it stayed at the same den or there's a den complex where there's more than one den within a, uh, a field. Uh, the, the most dens we had at one field were, were four, but normally they're only singular. Uh, and like I said, it's either a stump hole or a abandoned mammal burrow. Uh, survivorship, uh, there's so many things that can go wrong in a snake's life, which we earlier mentioned with road kills and predators. The other problem is, is uh, poaching. The northern pine snakes are very high on demand in the, in the pet trade. Everybody wants to have a northern pine snake in their collection. So uh, there is law enforcement, but the pine lands is a million acres and the conservation officers can't be everywhere at once. So, and to be clear, still it, goes on. To be clear, just for the audience, it is illegal to go out and catch a pine snake in the wild in New Jersey and take it. Absolutely, it's it's a threatened species in most states where it occurs, uh, and uh, it, it is illegal. And the fine can be up to three thousand dollars per snake if somebody is is caught. But. Uh, We've learned that the females have a better fidelity to the dens. The males do a lot of switching around from den to den. And other snakes turn up in the pine snake dens, black racers, uh, coastal plain milk snakes, uh, corn snakes will share hibernacula. We've even gotten a few black rat snakes. Uh, black rat snakes do occur in the pine barrens. They're just not as common as some of the other species, and they tend to follow the river systems. But uh, on several occasions, we've gotten black rat snakes. How about rattlesnakes? Uh, do, you ever recently, find, do you ever find rattlesnakes in the just, dens? I was just about to mention that. Uh, uh, we've had uh, neonate timber rattlesnakes in with pine snake dens. Uh, okay. In fact, uh, at one of our main study areas that we've been doing this for the last 35 years, We've had at least uh, 10 neonate uh, timber rattlesnakes hibernating with pine snakes. And uh, usually the person down there that's pulling the snakes out, they're not expecting to see a rattlesnake. And a few times somebody pulled one out with their hand and they thought it was a baby pine snake, but it was a baby rattlesnake. But luckily nobody was bitten because the snakes are so cold. <laughs> then, then we've had uh, gravid female timber rattlesnakes using the... Uh, the artificial or the modified natural den. Once we dig them up, then they become modified artificial dens. But we've had gravid female timber rattlesnakes using it as a rookery. Uh, they'll bask by the entrance of the artificial den and give birth right there. And that's why some of these neonates are using it as a hibernacular because uh, usually the, the, the baby rattlesnakes will follow the scent trail of the mother or any other adult timber back to the hibernacula. Huh. And I should mention in the Pine Barrens, the rattlesnakes hibernate in stream corridor edges. They do not, there's no mountains, there's no rocky fissures where they can hibernate. So they go down and they sit in the water, which prevents them from freezing. The moving water uh, is, is, is spring fed or stream fed, and, and they're just sitting there in the water covered by the roots and sphagnum moss over their heads. Sometimes they're only down six to 10 inches below the surface, but they can survive because of the moving water keeps them from freezing. So anyway, uh, most rattlesnakes hibernate along stream edges, but some of them do hibernate in uplands. And that's what we found with our artificial dens that the neonates are hibernating there. And then the adult females are using them as a rookery site because mm -hmm. they can have protection going down into the tunnel during, uh, a hot part of the day or during inclement weather. Huh. So we've learned a lot about how snakes share the, the community dens. Have you learned anything about the age at which uh, females, uh, you know, become sexually mature or the size or, or any indication on that? Are they like some of the other colubrids, say like indigo snakes that we work on quite a bit, they, you know, mature at a relatively young age or is, or are they more like, some of these rattlesnakes that might take years 
Now, the, in the wild, it takes about five years for a pine snake to start uh, laying oh, live okay. legs. Ma- males can, uh, maybe by their third year, they're, they're ready to mate, but it takes the females a little longer. But uh, once they reach sexual maturity, they can lay eggs. Uh, they do skip some years. It depends on the amount of food and, and the body weight of the female, whether she'll lay eggs every season or not. We've had some that do lay every year, but most seem to skip one year. And uh, we've had a few individuals that uh, skip three years, but that was rare. It's usually they need one year to fully uh, gain back the, the body weight and, and uh, to produce those very large eggs that they lay. Yeah. As I mentioned, the average clutch was nine eggs. And they're almost the size of chicken eggs. They're, yeah. they're really big. How about uh, hognose snakes? Do you have those in the Pine Barrens? Or what's their distribution yes, like in New Jersey? They're, they're quite common in the Pine Lands. And hognose can dig their own burrows. They usually excavate uh, mole tunnels. But uh, on a number of occasions, we've had hognose snakes sharing a nesting chamber with pine snakes. Ah, in fact, okay. uh, two years ago, we had two adult hognose snakes in with a female pine snake laying their eggs. And, and I should mention, as a conservation effort, uh, Joanna Berger and I have been hatching pine snake eggs in the lab, protecting them from predators and from poachers. And some years we'll have as many as 100 eggs that we incubate in the lab. And then we were able to put pit tags in all those babies. And uh, it allows us to monitor the survivorship and longevity of, of the hatchlings. Once we know how old the snake is, it's very easy to track uh, how long they live and how long they survive. So we've been doing that with the pine snakes and with corn snakes and with uh, king snakes, injecting pit tags as hatchlings. Huh. Excellent. Great. Well, uh, so we've been going on for almost an hour, and uh, I think you've heard some of the the other episodes. But one thing I like to do before we wrap up each episode is I like to ask our guests to just kind of imagine, you know, maybe we're sitting around a campfire in the Pine Barrens and we just spent a day out, you know, hunting for snakes and um, and then we're sitting around the fire and you're going to tell me uh, your best snake story, just like you'd tell me a fishing story or something like that. So what, what's a good snake story, Bob? Well, one of the things that really amazed me once we started radio tracking is how far pine snakes travel from their dens. We had uh, an adult male that traveled, uh, well, his home range size was 1,540 acres. And we had a female's home range size that was 1,236 acres. And it's hard to believe that some people keep these snakes in small little cages where they don't have much room to get around. Just like the indigo snakes can travel so far during their active season. Uh, We had uh, a timber rattlesnake that we tracked that moved eight miles from its winter hibernacula to its summer foraging habitat where it was mating with a a female rattlesnake. Wow. Eight miles it traveled from its den. So that really fascinated me. And one of our males that we were tracking at Crosley, uh, Crosley is pretty famous from Carl Caulfield's book, Crosley Pines and Corns. Uh, On a, I believe it was a a Wednesday morning, I found him by his den uh, basking. And uh, two days later, when I went to, to see if I could relocate him, I couldn't get a signal by his den or anywhere near his den. And I drove down uh, the old railroad bed. Uh, I went to check a female that I was tracking, and she was about a mile away from where the male's den was. And when I, after I checked the female, just for the hell of it, I turned on the male's frequency number, and he was right near the female. <laughs> In two days, he moved over a mile. Wow. So it just goes to show you, you know, how 
unpredictable they are. Yeah. Amazing yeah. animals. Amazing animals. Great. Well, well, Bob, it's been good chatting with you. I will, uh, if people want to learn more about you and your company, I'll put a link to Herpetological Associates in the in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to thank you a whole lot for uh, for joining me today. I really enjoyed it. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me, Chris, and I commend you for all the wonderful work and research that your organization does. And I was very happy to be part of some of the research when I work with Dirk Stevenson doing the indigo snake testing with the dog down in Georgia and Florida. So that was a great experience. And thank you so much for all you do. And I'm happy to be here with you today. Great. Well, we enjoyed it too, Bob. Thanks. And I wanted to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.